0: As I mentioned, it is the Midday Health Watch today with Dr. Lena Wen. I'm Tom Hall. Today we'll talk about the latest on the controversy surrounding theories about the origins of the COVID-19 virus, plus some new research about the problem of child obesity. And has Senator John Fetterman's hospitalization for clinical depression helped to remove stigma from mental health treatment. So we'll talk to Dr. Wen about these and other public health issues. You are welcome to join us with your questions about COVID or other topics. To join us, it's a different number than you use to become a member of WIPR. The number here on Midday, 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wipr.org. If you want to hang out on Twitter, it's at Midday WIPR. Lena Nguyen is one of America's most trusted and knowledgeable public health experts. We are proud and grateful that she has been a regular guest on our show for many years. She's, of course, former health commissioner of Baltimore. She's an emergency physician. She teaches at George Washington University. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a medical analyst for CNN and a senior fellow at Brookings. She's also the author of a terrific book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for public health. Dr. Wen joins us on Zoom. Hey, Lena, welcome back. Hi, Tom. Great to talk to you. So, let's talk about this uh, determination by the energy department that the origin of the COVID 19 vir- uh, virus. Uh, was the lab in Wuhan, China. Um, What do you make of this announcement, uh, which is, um, you know, in concert with certain other determinations by other people, and it's exactly opposite uh, determinations by another group of scientists and experts? Um, what, what, What should we know to sort all this out?
1: I think the important takeaway here is that we really don't know the cause of COVID-19, which, by the way, is not that unusual. It's been more than 40 years since the first case of Ebola, and we still don't know for certain what caused Ebola either in the case of covid let's lay out the facts so um there are four in us intelligence agencies that said that it's more likely that um that the origin of covid is the is from animal spillover so from animal to human um, um through the zoonotic origin which is the source of 3 out of 4 new or emerging infectious diseases they came from this animal-to-human spillover. Now, now there are two U.S. intelligence agencies, including more recently the Department of Energy, that said that they believe it's the lab leak, which, by the way, I think we also have to specify that no one in the intelligence community or otherwise um, has evidence that this is somehow intentional. So I think we need to take that off the table, that if this was a lab leak, that this was some kind of lab mishap, lab accident, but that again, this was not intentional. This was not part of a weapons program. Now, there is a lot of controversy because there are some scientists who. Um, there was, for example, a um, a paper published by uh, by by notable um, uh, virologists in the journal article Science that suggested um, that the animal spillover theory is more likely. But I think all in all, my takeaway here is. At this point, we don't know the cause, and in fact, we're now more than three years into the pandemic. It's possible that we may never find definitive evidence for either of these theories. But if both are possible and even likely, then it seems to me that instead of narrow-mindedly focused on figuring out which one of these is the is um, is is the um, definitive conclusion, we should shift our mindset to be asking, well, if either is possible, then why don't we take steps to prevent both from happening in the future? We know that there are issues with lab biosafety, not only in China, but in the US and the Netherlands, where there was um, recently um, a a case of of uncontained polio that infected a lab worker in 2022. We know that lab biosafety is an issue, so let's work on that. And at the same time, we also know that there are, uh, unfortunately, because of animals and humans coming into closer habitation because of climate change and so forth, that there are increased rates and increased dangers from zoonotic diseases too. So let's also work on that. I think we need to be forward-looking and look to prevent the next pandemic from happening instead of all this finger-pointing and, frankly, these political games that we're seeing being played using, in a sense, the origin of COVID as um, as an excuse.
0: Yeah, there's certainly been uh, all sorts of politics played with COVID ever since the beginning of the pandemic. But politics, you you wrote about this in the Post, politics and blaming are not conducive to solving the problem of the next pandemic. Um, And that, you know, is absolutely true. If we knew for certain that it was uh you know originated in a lab or it was a, a Zootonic, you know transferred from animal to human if if we did have a, an absolute uh you know certainty about where it started would it change the way we are approaching the treatment uh, of this pandemic would it change the way we would approach the the treatment of the next pandemic And in, in in what way what what does it, what would that knowledge do for us in terms of treatment
1: well that's the thing If we're saying that either of these hypotheses is possible, and in fact, um, both of these have resulted in various diseases and outbreaks and, uh, and infections before, then why aren't we treating both of them with the seriousness and urgency that, that they deserve. So if, for example, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was animal to human transmission, well, that's already three out of four new infectious diseases that we're seeing. So we should already been, be working on issues to, for example, reduce um, the cause, like through um, the causes would include these wet life, um, wet, wildlife wet markets, deforestation, certain farming practices. We should already be, be working on that. And at the same time, time, we also know that lab accidents have happened. Um, Here in the U.S. in 2014, for example, there were three very noted incidents involving anthrax bacterium, involving pandemic flu, um, um, and um, there have been other cases of lab leaks around the world. So I think there is a serious conversation to be had, too, about what is the level of oversight and regulation for research into dangerous pathogens? Can there be some kind of global um, treaty that scientists are are a part of. You also don't want to have so much regulation that people find it too prohibitive to be doing this research because we do need research into dangerous pathogens for purposes of, of prevention and treatment. But we should be working on those types of um, of analyses, regardless of whether this is lab leak. And I'll just say one more thing too here, Tom. I'm not sure that we're ever going to figure out what the cause of, um, of 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 COVID really is. Part of that is because of the deliberate obfuscation by the Chinese government, which they absolutely need to be held accountable for. But part of it also is that we have really politicized this issue so much that I'm not sure what level of evidence would convince the two sides that seem really dug in. There are people who are so convinced that this is somehow a lab leak and they're blaming the Chinese government or others for it, that I'm not sure what would convince them otherwise. And similarly, I think there are people, including the Chinese government, that are so convinced that this is not a lab leak. Again, I'm not sure what would convince them otherwise. And so that's why I believe that it's most important for us to move forward. And think about the 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 prevention aspect because that's hopefully one issue that we can all agree to.
0: Yeah, there's a piece in the New York Times this week uh, by a guy named David Wallace Wells, the headline of which was "The Debate Hasn't Made Us Safer." So, and you wrote about how we're asking the wrong questions when it comes to COVID nineteen. You also wrote about holding China accountable. I wonder, given China's reluctance to cooperate with the world community in investigating the origin uh, what what is holding accountable uh, in this case actually mean
1: well that's exactly right i wrote the i wrote that column after i, I heard various um various house republicans including the um um in, uh, including um Re- representative bacalm talk on cnn about um how he was calling for potentially sanctions or reparations or even criminal liability. Now, I think that that sends a really chilling effect. Of course, China did things that were wrong, including they were not upfront with the world community and with their own citizens about the threat of COVID. They could have done more around containment. They did not allow World Health Organization expert teams to enter. And that's all not the right thing to do. But if the goal in the future is to encourage other governments to be transparent, then threatening China with reparations or sanctions or criminal liability is really not the right way of doing things. It might disincentivize researchers from collaborating with the international community going forward. Um, it might make countries more suspicious of others and not be uh, be be transparent about um, about uh, new pathogens that that they're seeing for fear of being blamed for it. And I also um, in this article asked the question of what if the shoe were on the other foot. Again, there were these incidents where back in 2014, as an example, 75 workers at the CDC had to be quarantined, um, and some had to take antibiotics because they were exposed to anthrax that was accidentally not deactivated. Um, There was also a case of people in the FDA when they were moving offices, finding a whole bunch of unlabeled vials, and it turned out that some of those vials were smallpox vials that probably had been left there in this uncontained storage area, unsecured storage area since the 1950s. So thankfully, none of these accidents resulted in, um, in outbreaks, certainly nothing like what we saw for COVID. But what if it did? Should the U.S. be held accountable for mistakes? And I think here we really need to distinguish between a mistake that was an honest mistake, shouldn't have happened, but still an accident, versus something that was deliberate. And again, I think the when you listen to politicians talk about this, it seems like there is some deliberate or not um confusion over this issue of intentionality, which I think we really need to be clear about. Even this recent Department of Energy report that has sparked so much conversation was very clear in saying that there is no evidence for this being a bioweapon, that this was part of some weapons program. And without intentionality, accountability, I think, should look very different.
0: And that's a really, really important point to to stress. There is no evidence at all that this was an intentional act on the part of the Chinese government. Dr. Lena Wen is a columnist for The Washington Post, a medical contributor for CNN, a public health scholar at George Washington University, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. We will continue the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen in just a bit. You can join us at 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at WIPR.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. But first, we do want to take a minute to remind you that it is our spring membership campaign. You're listening to Midday here on 881 WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Very glad that you're listening. This is 881 wypr. And thanks again to everybody who's given in our spring membership drive. It is midday. And by the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, my guest will be Governor Wes Moore. He's a little more than a month into his historic term as the state's first African-American governor. And we'll talk about his legislative priorities and some of the initiatives that he's introduced as he settles into his new role in elective office. I'll also speak with Daniel Hatcher of the University of Baltimore. He's the author of a new book called Injustice, Inc., how America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. So that's coming up tomorrow on Midday. If you've just joined us today, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Dr. Wen is a former health commissioner of Baltimore, a scholar at George Washington University and the Brookings Institution. She also writes a column for The Washington Post, and she's a medical analyst and commentator on on CNN, if you have a question for Dr. Wan, a different number than you use to make a pledge to the, our to our membership drive, 8780 You can email us midday at wipr.org, and you can tweet us at midday wipr. So Lena, there was a piece in the Baltimore Banner a couple of days ago uh, about research that's happening at Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore about why some people don't ever seem to catch. COVID-19. I know a bunch of people who've had it two, three times, but there are other people who, despite being exposed, uh, don't seem to catch it. What do we know about uh, those kind of lucky people?
1: Well, we're learning about this, but um, I first want to say that it's actually more than likely that some of those individuals who think that they never had COVID actually did have COVID, but just had an asymptomatic version or had mildly symptomatic or were mildly symptomatic and maybe didn't get tested at the right time to be able to diagnose them. There was a CDC study that found that about half of the individuals who thought that they did not have COVID actually had antibodies showing that they previously were infected and had recovered from COVID. And so I think more than likely, um, it, uh, if somebody still says they've never had COVID but may have been exposed several times because maybe people their family had COVID or they've been living their lives and have not been taking various precautions. I think it's actually, it's the more likely possibility is that they they did have COVID and you could find out by getting an antibody test that specifically looks at whether you've had COVID. That said, there are definitely some individuals who have not had COVID and would test negative in this antibody. And I think we're still learning about these uh, about these people um perhaps that they they have a different perhaps they their genetics are somehow different there's some speculation that maybe they have um maybe they have a receptor that may be different and how it interacts with the with sars cov2 virus all of that will be interesting and i think instructive for us to better understand why some individuals Um, seem to be immune from COVID. And I hope it'll also help us to understand why some people suffer more from it, including from um, ongoing consequences, including long COVID, that we really don't know as much about.
0: Yeah, there's a whole bunch that still uh, remains to be found out, to be sure. We have an email from a listener, Maria, who says, I finally caught COVID two weeks ago and was gratified to have minimal symptoms, which proved the science behind vaccination. I did quarantine for more than five days as I'm retired, but am unclear as to whether or not I need to test negative before resuming activities. So, Lena, this is a question a lot of folks have. Maria says, I continued to test positive nine days post-initial positive test, and I'm just not sure what advice to follow at this point.
1: Well first of all, I'm glad that that um, that that the listener um, has at least recovered to the point that she feels like she's able to to, uh, to resume her normal activity. So what the CDC says is that you should be completely in isolation for five days following the onset of your symptoms or when you first start testing positive, whichever is first. And so for the first five days, you should not be seeing other people. Then for the next five days, you're able to go out in public, but make sure that you're wearing a high quality, well-fitting mask, ideally an N95. So if you have to go to work um, or if you have to go to the grocery store, make sure that you're wearing an N95 during those second five days. Now, the test testing component is interesting because the CDC is not saying that you you have to test out of isolation. They do give an option for testing out of isolation, but, but that's for if you want to curtail the 10 days to a shorter time. The CDC does not say, well, what happens if after nine days or after 10 days and you're still testing positive, you need to still be isolating. That's not technically what they say. However, my interpretation of this is, first of all, if you're on day nine, regardless of whether you're testing positive or negative, Negative. um although in this case if you're testing positive you definitely should be wearing a mask while in um, while in public places I think that um the testing to test to be out of isolation is most salient for individuals who are about to see a vulnerable family member or friend. So let's say that you are um, thinking about um, or that, that you are planning to visit your friend who's in a nursing home, or you're planning to have dinner with a friend who's immunocompromised and really does not want to have COVID. You should not be seeing them if you're testing positive, even if it's been, let's say, 12 days or 14 days after you've had COVID. I know it's after the 10 days that the CDC says, but if you're going to be gathering with somebody who is that vulnerable, you should not be gathering with them if you're still testing positive. That said, um, I think many other people um, um, are quite on the opposite spectrum of this. I think a lot of people are not even abiding by the masking for the second five days, um, which is, you know, I I actually think that the CDC really needs to, um, as a general point, that they need to be readjusting their guidelines, because right now they need to take into account that most Americans are really not following their guidelines for 10 days of masking. Um, and I think they need to be more specific about having guidelines to specifically protect vulnerable people, because I think it's more likely that people will say, OK, I'm not going to visit my, my vulnerable relative while I'm testing positive than it is for, for them to keep on masking for a longer period of time when most Americans are unfortunately not masking anymore.
0: Dr. Lena Wen is a former Health Commissioner of Baltimore. Our number here, if you have a question for Dr. Wen about COVID or anything else, 410-662-8780. That's a different number than the number you use to pledge in our spring membership campaign. Our email is midday at WIPR.org. You can always tweet us at midday. W I P R. So, Lena, your successor, Dr. Letitia Giraza, I believe, is set to announce that the public health emergency, which was declared uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, will end here in the city of Baltimore on the 11th of May. Uh, I think the federal health emergency has already ended, if I'm not uh, mistaken. What does it mean in a practical sense for the public health emergency for the city to be over? What what will that what will that change?
1: Well, the federal state of um, of emergency is also going to be ending in May. So what happened was that the Biden administration announced that that it was going to end. They were um, President Biden had said that he was going to give at least a 90 day notice so that hospitals and insurers and others could prepare for the end of that emergency. I'm not really sure what the separate end for the city is going to bring. Um, I think actually it's the federal state of emergency that's going to be um, uh, have the most impact. Um, and right now there are many um, uh, there are many institutions that are working to adjust to that end. So as an example, hospitals were able to have a lot more flexibilities because of the national state of emergency that the federal government gave. I'm not really sure what more the city um, has been able to do on top of that um but i i mean i think that you cannot my personal point of view here is that you cannot have a state of emergency forever. That um, in, in a way, it's like the boy who cried wolf. You can't be telling people that it's a five alarm fire all the time. When most people have resumed their normal lives, you need to public health guidance needs to adjust accordingly. And we need to save that emergency for when there's truly something that requires people to buckle down and mask or buckle down and get vaccinated or what, whatever the, the situation is again.
0: Yeah, and as we've talked many times, you know, there is a, you know, a likelihood uh Uh, or at least certainly the possibility uh, of another pandemic with another pathogen. Who knows what will happen in the future? I want to switch topics um, to mental health. Uh, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania checked himself into a hospital for clinical depression. Um, What do you think this... Uh, case means for the conversation about mental health. Here's a, a public figure who was, uh, you know, uh, locked in a, a long, long battle for his Senate seat. He ran against uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, won the seat. Um, he's, uh, of course, uh, a stroke survivor. He he suffered a stroke several months ago, um, and uh, he's uh, been, been wrestling with depression. What do you think this means for uh, what we know about and and how we feel about mental health.
1: I think it was a courageous disclosure. The um, uh, in the past, politicians were really hesitant to talk about mental health. If they mentioned mental health at all, they might talk about it as something that they saw their friends or family or constituents struggle with. Or if they talk it, they if they talked about it in themselves. They might say that it was something they themselves struggled with in the past with the implication being that if somebody is actively still struggling with mental health issues now that somehow that renders them incapable of of serving in public office which then also has implications for other jobs too people in other jobs might might be wondering well i don't want to tell my employer my boss for fear that it might um it, it might have it might give them some doubt about my ability to to perform my, my job I think there's an overdue paradigm shift here that we need to be treating mental health the same way that we do physical health. A politician uh, or a, an employee might well tell their their um the, the people um Um, who elected them or the people who gave them their their jobs, that they're suffering from diabetes or that they have a diagnosis of heart disease or a diagnosis of cancer. We should have that same approach when it comes to depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders that are extremely common. I mean, the National Institute of Mental Health estimates that 21 million adults, which is about 8.4% of the adult population, had at least one episode of major depression in a year that's a lot of people and it's actually comparable to other chronic diseases and so i think that this um the way that senator fetterman approached his mental health um di- diagnosis is really commendable and i hope that it will Um, That level of transparency um, is also going to encourage others to seek help, which I I would recommend a good place to begin to seek treatment is to talk to your primary care physician who can help you with an an initial assessment and referral. There are other programs like emergency assistance programs or school counselors, these resources through work or school, that may be helpful. Also, the federal government has a 988 number, which is a 24-7 phone and chat hotline. 988, again, they just launched it last year that I would really recommend people use. It's for individuals experiencing crisis or um, it's also part of a suicide hotline, but um, loved ones who want to get addiction support for their family, who want resources for mental health can also call as well. And I hope we really will treat this opportunity as a long overdue call to finally normalize treatment for mental health conditions, including depression.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I agree that it's very commendable and courageous of Senator Fetterman to go public and to seek the help that he needed. Um, what about the relationship between those who have survived stroke and uh, who experience depression. You wrote about this uh, in the Washington Post. Uh, some one in three patients uh, who've survived stroke do experience depression. So there, there is, uh, there seems to be some pretty strong linkage between these two uh, episodes.
1: Well, there is and there's also a link between um individuals with um individuals experiencing depression and people who were recently hospitalized for any number of things right that um, there may be something specific for having a stroke um but it's also people who were just diagnosed with with a chronic issue and in this case a chronic issue that may be debilitating if there's a stroke that impacts someone's ability to speak or to walk and so forth that it certainly has could have many consequences on how they think about their lives But I think that what was really commendable in this case um, um, with Senator Fetterman was they didn't just say that this was about the stroke. Um, In fact, they specifically said that he had depression on and off for years. Um, I think that that adds to the understanding of depression as a chronic disease, not dissimilar to physical ailments. As in, if you have a patient with hypertension or diabetes, they might be doing while they might be doing okay for a while, but then they may suddenly worsen or may need a medication adjustment or something else to manage their illness. That's not a failure. It's not because they were they somehow were morally or somehow weak um, but rather that this was this is about the nature of the illness. And so yes, it is true that individuals with um, with recent strokes, have an increased risk of depression, but I think it's particularly commendable for Senator Fetterman's team to also talk about his ongoing struggle with mental health.
0: Dr. Lena Wen is a former health commissioner of Baltimore, and we will have more of the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen in just a bit. This is 881, WYPR. Thanks, Matt. And again, thanks to everybody who's made a gift so far in these first few days of our spring membership campaign. WYPR.org is how you can show your support. If you've just joined us, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. I'm Tom Hall. Dr. Wen's latest book is terrific. It's called Lifeline's a doctor's journey in the fight for public health. Dr. Winn's a former health commissioner in Baltimore. She's a scholar at George Washington and at the Brookings Institution. She's also a columnist for the Washington Post and a medical analyst and commentator on CNN. To join us, it's a different number than you use to make a, uh, make a contribution to WIPR. 410-662-8780 is our number here at Midday. Our email, midday at WIPR.org. and You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. Selena, we have another COVID question from Arnold, who says, I'm an 82-year-old diabetic. I've got two boosters. The last one I got was in October. Uh, Is it time for another booster? And if so, which one should I take? Again, a common question we get uh, on many of your appearances here on the program, but it's good to remind folks of uh, what the current thinking is.
1: Absolutely. This is one of the most common questions that I get um, through the Checkup newsletter in the Washington Post, and so I appreciate the question, Arnold. Right now, federal health officials are not recommending a second bivalent booster. So as a reminder about which booster is available, the only booster that is um, that's available for Pfizer and Moderna is the bivalent booster, which is the there's um, it's the updated one that was updated um, uh, and and first made available in September um, of 2020. This is the one that everybody is recommended to, um, to, to, to receive. Certainly, individuals in your age group should absolutely have this updated booster. Now, there are some individuals, of course, who are concerned um, because they last received this booster in September and or October when, when, it was first, um, when it was first authorized. And they're wondering, should I get a second bivalent booster? That is not yet recommended by the FDA and the CDC. That said, I wrote a recent column on how I believe that those individuals, especially those who are older, 65 and older, and individuals with immunocompromise, I hope that there'll be better guidance coming out from our federal health officials, because we do know that the that there is a waning effect of the boosters over time, that protection against severe disease probably is strong, um, but uh, the protection against symptomatic disease wanes very quickly. And even by three months after the the booster, probably it has waned significantly. And so um, I I would say right now, there might be some pharmacies that um, are not abiding by um, federal health guidance um, that would allow you to get a second bivalent booster But that is not something that's yet recommended by by federal health officials. I would say to to you um, that you should have a plan, as everyone should, for what happens if they have COVID. Know if you're eligible for Paxlovid. Know how you can get access to it. If you cannot, are you able to get Desivir, um, um, another antiviral treatment? Also. uh, 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 make sure that um, that you're using other precautions as well. If avoiding COVID is a goal, and it's been six months or so since your last um, vaccine um, dose, then um, know that your vaccine may still be protecting you well against severe disease, but not so much against symptomatic disease. And so if you want to keep avoiding COVID, make sure that you're using other precautions, including masking while in crowded public spaces, and asking that those who you're, um, who you're gathering with to test before seeing you
0: we have a call from uh, or a a message from a listener named Drake who says what about the reduction in snap benefits and Medicaid what does this mean for nutrition and physical and mental health Um, so dr. when what are the the public health implications uh, of reducing snap benefits
1: Well, I think this is referring to what happens with the state of emergency ending. Um, um, and part of the state of emergency ending is other types of um of of measures that were linked to the state of emergency, including around SNAP um, and around um, and around re enrollment for for Medicaid, those flexibilities are going to be ending as well. So obviously there are consequences with Medicaid, with people getting kicked off of Medicaid. That's a serious problem, not just for COVID, but for other things. i I don't want people to have worsening of their underlying medical issues and to not be able to get care for their heart disease and their diabetes and um and their strokes and other issues too um i'm also of course concerned about the um, rampant food insecurity um that predated covid um that the um, that we are continuing to to um to, to 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 see now and so i think these issues really need to be addressed of course there are public health consequences to them I just also though agree with the Biden administration ending the state of emergency because I think you can't use that state of emergency as a cudgel to address every systemic issue of which there are many. I mean, we have not an adequate social safety net. We have a serious problem with lack of access to healthcare including preventive healthcare in this country, but using a national state of emergency to as a permanent fix, that's not the right way to do things. And further, I think politicizes COVID um, it also increases the narrative that COVID is being quote-unquote used in order to address these these other issues, which, you know, in some case, in some ways, um, that is an accurate way of perceiving it.
0: And as I mentioned, my guest tomorrow will be Governor Wes Moore. Uh, Maryland, turns out, uh, I think is one of uh, just a couple of states uh, acting uh, on the SNAP benefits uh, issue at the state level. So we'll talk to Governor Moore about his plans in that regard. Um, I want to ask you, uh, Lena, about care. This is again uh, in the news because former President Jimmy Carter uh, made a decision to stop uh, treatment uh, and uh, go into home hospice at his home in Plains, Georgia. Um, what should people know about this option for for end-of-life care hospice?
1: Well hospice care is for, is a type of specialized medical care for people who are near the end of their lives. Generally to be eligible Individuals have to have a curable medical or sorry, an incurable medical condition, also an expected life expectancy of less than six months. The focus of hospice care is different than how we think about traditional medical care, because it's not on the cure, but rather it's on maximizing comfort, on reducing pain, and tending to the emotional, the spiritual needs of the patient and the family. It's not giving up as um, there's some misunderstanding about hospice care, but rather it's really focused on a different stage, a different goal on ensuring comfort and, and quality of life um i was um I, I have personal experience with this my my mother um towards the uh, end of her life um she had metastatic breast cancer and um she had, at the um she, at at some point she decided that after multiple rounds of chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and she ended up having um a recurrence um she chose hospice care at the end of her life And it's still a type of care that is really underutilized. There's a lot of misconception around it, um, a lot of misunderstanding. But I hope that in, in being open about his decision, that former President Jimmy Carter is also encouraging other patients and families to look into this option that can really give a lot of comfort and hope, um, and for for people near the end of their lives.
0: President Carter, of course, 98 years old. We talked last week uh, with a scholar uh, who, you know, assessed the president's legacy, particularly his legacy as a former president. Uh, and we wish him and his family all the best at this very tender time. So, Dr. Nguyen, we uh, are out of time, unfortunately, and I very much look forward to the next time you can join us. Dr. Lena Nguyen is a former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and the author of Lifelines, a doctor's journey in the fight for public health. She's a columnist for The Washington Post, a commentator on CNN, and a great friend of this show. So thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next month.
1: Thank you very much, Tom.
0: Again, uh, coming up tomorrow here on Midday, Governor Wes Moore will join me. We'll talk about uh, all the issues that he's been confronting in his first month or so of office. It is midday. I'm Tom Hall. This is 88.1 WYPR.